0: Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. A show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Saxophonist Kenny G. Kenny G. That's I don't know why, it just feels right. Kenny G is one of the best-selling artists of all time. Listen to how many albums Kenny G has sold. 75 million, that's a lot of albums. And he was in the Guinness Book of World Records for holding the longest note on a saxophone. Kenny G, I can't stop calling him anything but Kenny G. Kenny G held an E flat for 45 minutes and 47 seconds using a technique called circular breathing. And I'm surprised every time I bring this up, like the record, people are like, oh, you circular breathing. I'm like, how does everybody know this <laughs> fact? I never heard of this. What is circular breathing? It's a technique
1: that woodwind players use where they store air in their cheeks just long enough to suck in air through their nose and so they push out that cheek air while they're breathing in through their nose, and then the lungs take over again. So you have an uninterrupted airstream, which means you can hold that note for, apparently, 45 minutes and 47 seconds. And 47
0: seconds. seconds. That sound that you hear behind me talking right now, that is not his record-breaking note officially, but it is a note that he held for a very long time when I saw him perform at Seattle's Jazz Alley recently. We get it, Kenny. We get it. Kenny. G. (laughs) I'll tell you all about that show coming up later in the episode. Also coming up, Kenny has been credited with helping invent a menu item at one of America's most iconic and beloved chains. So of course I had to ask him about it.
2: Part of what you said is true and part of what you said isn't true. The fake news took some some little snippet and ran with it, and it became a fact that people think is true.
0: We'll tell you the menu item and the chain in question later in the episode. And we'll chat with Elia Kassoff, who took it upon himself to start manufacturing classic candies and cookies that went out of production years ago. This is the man single-handedly responsible for bringing back the Hydrox
3: cookie, to wake up one day to say to yourself, I own my favorite candy in the world, is a pretty cool feeling. All of these old products that I bring back, it's so much fun. I don't even feel I'm working. It's just one of those things.
0: And so many ands starting this episode. We got lots coming up. Producer Aaron and I spent the last weekend in New York City. By the way, my mom texts to tell me it's the city that never sleeps. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Uh, but we were in New York City at the James Beard Awards. Your Last Meal was nominated for Best Podcast along with two other podcasts, so we will give you the cliff notes on our trip and how the awards went. But first, my conversation with Kenny G. Okay, so let's go back to high school. I read that when you first tried out for the jazz band, you didn't make it your first time around.
2: Oh, that's true. Now, you know, I was uh, number one in my junior high. I was number one in my elementary school, but by the time I got to high school, all the other guys that were number one in their respective elementary and junior highs—they were better than me. And so I got a big uh, kind of a an eye-opening experience. I I didn't like that I didn't make the band, but that is true. I mean, I really loved. I loved the sax since the beginning. I loved. I love. I still love it. I love. I'm intrigued by how it works. You know, I practice every day. I practice three hours today. That's why I want to make our interview at 11, uh, because I practice from 7 to 10 usually. And so it gives me time to eat something afterwards, and, and then my day can start.
0: It sounds like you got a, a head start pretty early, though. So is it true that when you were just 17 and still in high school, you got to play with the Barry White
2: Band? That's very true. And it's all because of going to Franklin High School in Seattle and the fact that we had a composer in residence. His name was Jim Gardner. And he he's still alive, by the way. He was talking to some friend of his that happened to mention that that he, this friend, was putting together the orchestra for Barry White when he came to the Northwest, Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver. Barry White's sax player was not coming and they needed to find a guy that could play like R&B style, but improvise and also read music really well. And my band director said, well, the only guy I know that can do that is this kid in my high school band. And that's how I got the gig. That's
0: incredible. So did you realize what a big opportunity it was at the time?
2: I think I was just too naive to be nervous. The the biggest problem, the biggest stress was that I didn't have a black suit. Yeah. You You know, I'm 17 and clothes were not important to me. I just had like a some sort of a checkered blazer that I wore at my bar mitzvah, you know? And <laughs> and I brought that to oh, the done. gig and they go, well, you got to find a black jacket. And so I said, well, I, you know, so somebody lent me one or whatever. And actually, if I think back and without sounding conceited, I mean, I killed that 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 uh, that experience. I mean, I just, I murdered the parts. It was just the way I played. It was just so great. And it gave me a lot of confidence. And also, you know, I got a lot of, feedback from the people in Barry White's band the orchestra people I was you know I was younger than everyone by at least 10 plus years and they're all telling me how great I am so that kind of gave me a lot of confidence to say hey you know maybe uh maybe I'll keep playing this thing maybe this is going to be good because I got paid so the first time I ever made any money was playing that gig I never had a job before that so that was pretty cool.
0: And this explains why everyone who's ever played with Barry White since wears a yarmulke when they perform, because they all thought you did such a good job in your bar mitzvah outfit.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's so funny. Here's a funny story. So 20 years later, I'm at the Soul Train Music Awards, and I, I have a, I have two Soul Train Music Awards. So there's a white guy, a Jewish guy, with two Soul Train Music Awards. So I'm, I received my award, and I'm in the bathroom, you know, whatever, and Barry White walks in. And so he's at the sink washing his hands, and I come up to the sink and I say to him, Hey, Barry White, you know, look, you know, the first guy I ever played was with you and in your band, man. I can't believe I'm here and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, hey, that's great. Hand me a paper towel. Oh, <laughs> Barry White, dashing dreams. It made me laugh. It didn't make me feel bad. I thought, well, he doesn't he has no idea who I am. And anyway, it was really cute. And I thought, wow, it came full circle. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool.
0: Something that I was really interested in uh, is the fact that you were an early investor in Starbucks, and this blew my mind today that you take some credit for uh, inventing the Frappuccino or getting Starbucks to serve the Frappuccino.
2: See, now, now th- you know, when you hear about fake news, part of what you said is true and part of what you said isn't true. That's the it. fake news took some some little snippet and ran with it, and it became a fact that people think is true. Now, I did not uh, invent the Frappuccino, so I take no credit (laughs) for that. But the truth is that I did um, meet Howard Schultz back in the early days when uh, he was just getting started with uh, Starbucks and raising money, and my uncle told me that I should meet him and that I should invest in this coffee company because my uncle was one of the you know, bigger Jewish businessman in Seattle. And so he was part of investing in things. And one of the things that he invested in was Starbucks. And he said, hey, you should do this. So I met Howard and super captivated by his personality. He's an amazing guy and passionate and, you know, all the things that we know about Howard Schultz. So I thought, wow, I mean, of course I'm going to invest. And that's what I did. So it wasn't like I was big, some smart guru. I, I got advice from my uncle. And I figured, well, this guy seems like he's going to be a super successful guy, which obviously it turned out to be. But, yeah, I'm sure it was very risky. And, you know, my business people at the time told me that it was too risky to invest. And I just ignored them and did it anyway.
0: There was some specific story language. I want to know if this is all fake news. What I read was that you had gone to Coffee Bean and noticed that they had a blended drink and it was a sweet drink. And people were ordering it and the lines around the corner and that you suggested that maybe Howard Schultz consider a similar drink. Is that true?
2: That's true, but that doesn't mean I helped invent Chef Frappuccino. That's just, that's just, Howard's my friend we you know i'm i'm one of the early investors so i'm my radar is up about anything with coffee and so when i see these things i just report them back to my friend hey i saw this what do you think about that so that's it you know there's no like hey i went in there with this recipe and said hey man you know i want to be on the taste testing none of that happens so you know the full credit for frappuccino goes to howard and his team what was the time elapse though between you giving
0: him this suggestion and 1995 when the frappuccino was born Good question. I have no idea. It could have been years. You'll have to look in your uh, diary, dear diary. Today I had a delicious drink at Coffee Bean.
2: No, but see, I don't drink. I don't drink those things. So I, I just knew that that it was popular. And I mean, I tasted the Frappuccino. Uh, I mean, the um, whatever it was called there at at the other place, but and it was good. You know, it tasted like a milkshake. Anyway, no. I mean, that's that's the end of the story. There, there's nothing to the story. What is your order at Starbucks? Um, you know, I'm probably if I go to Starbucks, I get a juice and some tea. That's kind of what I do. <laughs> you know, believe me, you don't want me with coffee. I've too much energy as it is.
0: I'm the same way. Only drink decaf. I can't handle it. I'm too hyper,
2: yeah. i'm I've got too much as it go as it is now, so I got to watch myself
0: and now the history of the Frappuccino, which, as Kenny G says, has nothing to do with Kenny G. But we'll do it anyway. Starbucks did not want to be interviewed for this podcast. No idea why. But they did issue this statement that we had our production guy, Russ
2: read. Uh Kenny has been a dear friend of Starbucks since the beginning of the company. He uh, did provide feedback on the creation of the Frappuccino beverage. And we're very appreciative of everyone, including Kenny, who has been a part of the success of Frappuccino.
0: Apparently, that's what Russ thinks a Starbucks spokesperson sounds like. And... Who are we to say that he's wrong? All right, so moving on with the timeline of the Frappuccino. Interest started to peak in 1993 when customers started to ask baristas for iced blended drinks. This was in Southern California. So the individual stores down there, the Santa Monica store, they started experimenting with ice and milk and espresso. The Santa Monica store tested the first Frappuccino and it was an instant customer favorite. As for the name, this is interesting. In June 1994, Starbucks acquired the Coffee Connection in Boston, and they also inherited one of their products that was called Frappuccino. It was a cold, slushy drink made from a soft-serve machine. Starbucks decided not to go with that drink, but they slapped the name Frappuccino on their new blended coffee drink, evocative of both the cold of a frap and the coffee in a cappuccino. It's a portmanteau. And then in 1999, Starbucks introduced the green straw and the domed lid that we're all used to. And this is crazy. Starbucks says there are more than 36,000 ways to customize your Frappuccino. You can pick what milk you want. You can pick your toppings. Uh, And in countries around the world, they have customized drinks to match the food of that culture. So for example, in Japan, they have the white tiramisu Frappuccino. This is the white caramel creme Frappuccino mixed with crumbled bits of cookie and white chocolate brownie, topped with cream cheese mousse and caramel sauce. Locale. Uh, In England, they have these strawberries and cream frappuccino. In Peru, they have something that I'm going to mispronounce called the... Algarobina Frappuccino. Algarobina is a syrup made from the black carob tree, and it's very popular in Peruvian cuisine, says the website. So they blend the Algarobina sauce with Frappuccino roast, chocolate chips, mocha, milk, and ice, and then they top it with whipped cream and a swirl of Algarobina sauce.
1: Algarobina.
0: Algarobina. And that is all I have to tell you about the Frappuccino. Guys, we are just getting started. We haven't even gotten to Kenny's last meal yet. And of course, we have to talk about his piece de resistance, his big mane of curly hair. Now, being a fellow curly-haired person, I had to know what product he uses. And it turned out this was a very sensitive topic because Kenny G's product
2: has been discontinued. I've contacted the company, begged them, I said, I'll pay you whatever. Just make me a lifetime supply. I'll keep it in my, you know, you never have to. Nobody else ever has to even know it's there. Just give me like 50 bottles of that stuff, and I'll keep it for the rest of my life, and I'll be happy.
0: We will be right back after this quick break. A couple weeks after I interviewed Kenny G, he came to Seattle, his hometown, to perform eight sold-out shows at Jazz Alley. And my friend Jess insisted that we go. So I went to my very first Kenny G show. Uh, it was very entertaining. I will say that I have not listened to much of his music. I wouldn't call myself a fan. I loved Kenny, and I think he is super fun and funny and interesting, but uh, it's not the genre of music I usually listen to. So I was surprised at how funny he was during the show. So something cool, um, he comes out and he's playing, and then when he finally you know, speaks to the audience, he says that the saxophone that he's playing is his sax from high school that he played when he was at Franklin High School and his piano player was in his jazz band in high school they've been playing together for 30 years which is really cool but then Kenny starts on the the dad jokes he says I wrote down these quotes in my phone let me talk about this instrument so you know what I'll be blowing all night (laughs) is what Kenny said and then he breaks and he goes that didn't come out right Uh, He also announced that we were at a sax education (laughs) seminar many times during the show. Uh, And then he also, after he was talking about the fact that he's played this saxophone for a very long time, he said, this proves if you blow something for 40 years, you'll stay together.
1: Oh, Kenny.
0: He also made some deep cuts at Michael Bolton (gasps) because Michael Bolton cut his hair and Kenny G did not cut his hair. So he had some words for that. And I also think it's important to note That the encore of the night, the last song played at the show, was Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On.
1: Hey, it's timeless.
0: I was surprised by that. So, after the show, Kenny is a very obliging performer. He does this meet and greet after the show and everybody gets in line and he's such a great entertainer that he wants to sign autographs and meet everybody that comes to a show and as you'll hear in a couple minutes, Kenny does not get to eat for many hours before his show so he's probably starving at this point so Jess and I rush to get in line and we go up and we chat with him and my life has changed because it turns out Kenny G is my real father. <gasps> You need to go to the Instagram page. It's your last meal podcast. Kenny G and I look exactly the same. It's true. Kenny G and I have the exact same hair and our face <laughs> looks the same and we're wearing the same freaking outfit. And it's so weird.
1: Oh, It's the best picture ever.
0: It's so crazy. So if I walked up and I said, Papa, is it you? No, I should have them. Um, but I didn't want Kenny G to kick me out of Jazz Alley. So anyway, go to our Instagram page, Your Last Meal Podcast, to see my real father. <laughs> all right, so let's get to the point of the podcast. Let's hear what Kenny G's last meal would be.
2: My last meal, if I had to have one meal, and this—I hope this doesn't sound elitist because it's not meant to be—but you know, because I go to Asia all the time, I've 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 had such great, you know, sushi and that kind of food. But there's a one particular thing that I've eaten, and it's at the Nobu restaurant here in Los Angeles. Um, actually, it's at Matsuhisa, but that's the that's the original Nobu restaurant. And the the dish is it's it, the fish is called Toro, and they sear the Toro, and he serves it with a balsamic teriyaki sauce. It's over some sticky white rice, and there's a little bit of um, what's the, what's the, Brussels sprouts with it. So sticky white rice and the seared Toro with a balsamic teriyaki sauce. And I would eat that as my last meal, but I could eat that for every meal.
0: So the toro is the fatty tuna belly.
2: So good. Yeah. Man. And, and the, the way they make it, the way they do it with that sauce, I have tried to get the sauce recipe from those guys. And it's just, it's not going to happen. It may happen. Maybe it'll, maybe I, maybe it'll happen on my last meal and I won't have any time to, to make it, but I hope I get it sooner than later. Cause it's so good.
0: So when you ask for it, they just refuse. Have you tried to, to figure it out at home and deconstruct it?
2: Yeah, I have tried. And and by the way, I've looked online, and there's guys that say they know how to do it. And I've read Nobu's cookbooks, and it's in there. But for whatever reason, the way I make it doesn't work out. I, what I'd like to do is um, go into the kitchen and watch them make it but i don't think i i haven't been allowed to do that yet must i think there's some health issue you know health code thing that won't let me go back there or maybe i just need to put my hair in a hair net or something i don't know i'll figure it out i was just
0: going to say cuz i have the same hair as you we have like a big jewish fro you know so it's like you can't just bring that hair in the back of a restaurant you got to put it up <laughs>
2: You're you're right about that. And by the way, if I went to the restaurant and I saw anybody with my hair working in the back, if they had it out like I wear mine, I'd be pissed.
0: (laughs) I have to ask you on that note, because I don't know if this comes up for men, but as a woman with curly, curly hair, anytime I encounter another woman with curly hair, the first thing is, what do you use? What's your product? So I feel like I have to ask you this. What do you use? What's your product?
2: See, this is a question I get all the time, and it's always from from ladies. Yes, uh, because there's not a lot of guys that have long curly hair. So, the product, unfortunately, Rachel is um, discontinued. So, oh. yeah, it's um, it's called Mop M O P.
0: I remember that stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah. You ah. so you remember, and it's called Mop Defining Cream. Now they have a Mop Defining Cream now, but they changed it. It's not even close to being as good as the original. I've contacted the company begged them. I said, I'll pay you whatever. Just make me a lifetime supply. I'll keep it in my, you know, you never have to, nobody else ever has to even know it's there. Just give me like 50 bottles of that stuff and I'll keep it for the rest of my life and I'll be happy. And it just isn't going to happen. So I call it liquid gold. It's my liquid gold. I keep that in a special box. And when I need to look good, I use it. And when I'm on a regular daily basis, I use the other stuff.
0: Going back to Nobu, I interviewed Jillian Michaels on one of my earlier episodes, and she lives in Malibu, which I believe you live in Malibu, right? I do. I live in Malibu, yeah. Yeah. And she said there's not that many restaurants around there, and one of them is Nobu. And she says she feels so bougie because she has two kids, and the way she grew up was pretty humble. And she's like, my kids, like, Nobu to them is like going to McDonald's on a Tuesday night. Like, they're just like coloring. And so, yeah, I just thought that was kind of funny. She's like, it's really embarrassing. She says when her daughter plays dolls, the dolls
2: go to Nobu. Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, look, that's up to her. I I I never <laughs> my my two boys know how special it is to go to Nobu. And I don't take them. In fact, I cook I cook all the time, so I hardly ever go out, but when I do go to Nobu, um it's very rarely with the kids. Uh and I always let them know. I I I point out people in the restaurant and go, "You know, th- there's there's people here that have worked all month, saving up for this one night or maybe months. So I said, don't take this lightly that we're here tonight. And I always stress the fact that this is a big deal and there's no way they're ever going on my credit card. That's why I tell them. I see all these douchey Malibu guys in there and you know they can't afford it. They just got the credit card from the parents and they're letting... I said, you're never doing that. You want to go to Nobu, you make your money, and then you f- then you make the decision that you're going to take all that hard-worked money and you're going to spend it on one dinner at Nobu. That And I said, your date better be worth it. And if she is, great. That's what you should do. And that's the kind of stuff that you need to learn. But you're not going on my credit card. How old are your kids and what is their favorite thing that you cook for them? My two sons, 24 and 20. Um, good question. Gosh, you know... I make a lot. I actually cook a lot of things. I make a really good prime rib. I make the miso cod from Nobu. I've, I actually got that recipe, so I can make that, and which they like. But I'm really good at making pies. And I think uh, my son Noah's favorite is my apple pie. And Max, I think he likes my strawberry rhubarb pie the best. But that's what they love, those kind of things. And I love to cook for them.
0: That is so great. Do you make your own crust, too?
2: Of course. If you don't make your crust, you can't say that you made a pie. That's There's nothing to make in a pie if you don't make your crust. That's true. You just dump a bunch of fruit in. <laughs> just dump a bunch of fruit in and put it in the oven. That's, oh, I baked a pie. That's not baking a pie. That's nothing. Now, you make the crust and you got to, you know, and, and the crust I make, um, and boy, this is going to super sound like name dropping, but I got the recipe from Cindy Crawford. Okay. Oh. I said that. I, you, you know, I'm not saying it only because, I'm saying it because it's true. And it's a it's a it's a butterless crust. So you make it with oil. You don't make it with butter. And it's I've tried. I know how to make any kind of crust. I've tried it against like the standard, you know, French pastry butter crust. And my this this um, oil-based crust is way better. But it requires a lot of finicky finesse to get it to work because it doesn't stick together like a like a butter one. But you know, I've learned to do it, and it and everybody comments how much they love the crust.
0: It's supermodel pie. It is. Is there anything more frustrating than having your hair product discontinued? Yes. Yes, there is. Apparently so. For Elia Kassoff, it's candy. Elia loved Astro Pops as a kid. And as an adult, he would buy them at the Smart and Final in L.A. But one day, he went to get his Astro Pops, and they were gone. And he came back, and they were still gone, and he started calling other stores in the area, and nobody was selling Astro Pops.
3: So I called the company, which was Spangler Candy at the time. Their core product are dum-dums and and candy canes. And I talked to the president. I said, what happened to Astropops? And they said, yeah, we felt that it wasn't part of our, quote, marketing mix, unquote. And we stopped making them. So I just kind of threw it out there. I said, would you sell the rights? And they said, yeah, because I said to myself, I can't let something like that just die off.
0: Now, at the time, Elia had a long established career in the corporate headhunting business. But his family used to own a huge candy company in Chicago called Leaf, started by his uncle Ed in the 1920s.
3: Uh, Hershey um, acquired the brands in the mid-90s. And it was brands like Whoppers and Jolly Rancher and Payday and Rainbow Bubblegum. So it was the fourth largest candy company in the U.S. Once Hershey bought them, they just tossed the name away.
0: So Elliot decided to bring back the Leaf candy brand and start manufacturing Astro Pops. A conical, rocket-shaped lollipop that's three flavors and colors stacked on top of each other. You got your pineapple, you got your passion fruit, and you got your cherry. Now, according to Leaf's website, astropops were developed in the 1960s by two NASA rocket scientists. They were hoping to create a candy that would represent the space program. And lucky for Elia, Spangler Candy sold him the original recipe.
3: With Astropops, all the machinery was already sold off as scrap metal years before. So we did get some of the artwork. We did get some of the old advertisements. We did get all the formulas. And then we we got a lot of support from Spangler to help us. It's a very complex product to make.
0: Elia also ended up buying Tartan Tiny's, Wacky Wafers, and Bonkers Candies, bringing them all back from the dead. And he resuscitated Hydrox, the black and white sandwich cookie with the weirdly German-looking font that I always thought was an Oreo knockoff.
3: It was the original sandwich cookie in 1908. It was invented by Sunshine. And Nabisco quickly, four years later, built Oreo as the knockoff to Hydrox. And I don't believe that they really pushed the fact that Oreo was the knockoff. So you fast forward to the mid-90s. Sunshine was sold to Keebler. Keebler decides, you know what? We don't like the name Hydrox. It sounds like a chemical. Hydrox was the combination of hydrogen and oxygen. They wanted to make it a name that evoked Clean. I mean, remember, this is 1908. They didn't really know too much about marketing. Hydrox cookies were a big part of Elia's childhood. I was a Hydrox kid growing up because I was uh, came from a Jewish kosher household. So we never had Oreo because that always had, uh, believe it or not, beef fat and lard. Hydrox was always known as, as the vegetarian or the kosher you know, product. My dad, I kind of surprised him. I took him to the local Gelson's in Irvine, and I didn't say anything. We were on our way to the movies, and and I said, hey, I need to stop off the supermarket and get something. And he was going to stay in the car. I said, can you – let me get out of the car, Dad. I'm going to be a little bit wild. He comes and follows me, and I I walk to the cookie aisle. And I go, oh, what's that? And there's Hydrox in the cookie aisle. And he's like, oh, my gosh, you put – it's there. Oh my, And there was an employee who was restocking. That's my son's cookie. That's Hydrox. Sell lots of it.
0: <laughs> when I was chatting with Elia, I immediately knew which product I would bring back if I had my way. Pudding pops. I feel like we all, from the 80s, we all want pudding pops to come back, minus Bill Cosby, of course.
3: <laughs> yeah, actually, you're not the first one to ask that. When I bring back a product, though, it really depends on where it is, how easy is it to access the formula that it's not easy. It, the easy part is getting the trademark sometimes. The hard part is getting the formula getting the people that used to make it uh making sure that you know there's a good customer base doing your market research but if i can't bring a product back the exact way it was it's it's very hard to bring that product back because your core customer that says like you i want pudding pods back i want them back but if you try it while it's on the shelf, oh great it's back and you try and you go oh this isn't a pudding what the heck I just lost my core customer base after the first purchase. So people ask, you know, pitch me all the time, can you bring back certain products? No, I can't. That formula is probably locked away somewhere. The person might be retired. The company was bought and sold four times. It's it's not as easy as people think.
0: Oh, man. I loved Pudding Pops, though. Were you a Pudding Pop fan?
3: Yeah, I loved Pudding Pops.
0: Okay, do you remember this? So you would bite into it and there was this very very thin layer of ice and your teeth would just shatter it it was like crackly and crispy and then underneath that thin layer of ice it was very creamy so good i even remember what the stick tasted like because i would like gnaw (laughs) and chew on the stick to try to get all of the ice cream off oh somebody bring back the pudding pop all right we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back kenny g talks about the strict way that he eats when he's on tour And you will learn just how big Kenny G is in China. Not literally. He is very skinny. Kenny G wants toro with balsamic teriyaki sauce from Nobu a Japanese fusion restaurant owned by 69-year-old Nobuyuki Matsuhisa. Nobu developed his signature fusion style after he moved to Lima, Peru to open a restaurant. He says he couldn't find a lot of the Japanese ingredients that he was used to, so he used what he could and he experimented and he ended up coming up with new dishes that became iconic. Now, there are so many Nobu and Matsuhisa restaurants, some of them, a lot of them actually partially owned by Robert De Niro. I got bored counting the locations. (laughs) There are 20 in the U.S. alone and then dozens internationally everywhere from Greece to Hungary to Dubai to Mexico City and Moscow. Nobu declined our request for an interview. You sense in a theme here. (laughs) But it looks like the recipe for that dish is pretty Googleable. And there's even a bottled Nobu balsamic teriyaki sauce that you can buy. So what are your rituals uh, surrounding performing and eating? Do you wait a certain amount of time? Are there certain foods that you eat that influence your playing?
2: Well, uh, y- yes. That's, boy, that's a good question. You're the only one that's ever asked me that ever in all these years. But I'll tell you that, how it works for me. I, I have sushi every day, um, and I have it at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. My food comes at 1 o'clock. This is, this is the great thing about being the boss. I tell my tour manager, sushi at 1 in my hotel room. You have to picture us pulling into town at four or five in the morning ish in a bus, okay? You've been on the bus for about four hours. Maybe you've slept in a couple hours, maybe not. You got to get off the bus. you got to get into the hotel room. So now you're in your hotel room. It's five in the morning. You're kind of half awake. You know you just need to go to sleep. so you lay down, try to sleep till about ten. and I try to eat something like uh, an oatmeal or something that I have, maybe some granola bars or something. Then we all work out at eleven. Then my sushi will come to the hotel room at one, I eat it, and then I get picked up at two, I go to the venue, then I practice for two hours, then I have a f- half hour break, then I do my sound check from like five to six, then I get dressed, then I do my meet and greet, then I sign some CDs, play my show from like eight to 10, and then I sign CDs, and then I eat my dinner at 11 o'clock. And then about 12 o'clock we get on the bus, and the whole thing happens again, just oh. like that.
0: Wow, that's a busy it- day. So, for your dinner, do you try to eat food that's local to that area or do you just kind of have them bring something in again
2: for you? Oh, no, they, they bring something in because at 11 o'clock, everything's closed usually. So, I can't go out to dinner. I don't see, I don't, I never get to go to any restaurants. It's always brought in. So, uh, once I finish signing my CDs at the end of the show, um, I go back to my room and it's either going to be Thai food, Vietnamese food, or Italian. And we, usually go over a, a, a menu uh, sometime during the day and I, and I, you know, I pick out what I want and then it, it, it magically appears. And I'd say six times out of 10, it's really good. And four times out of 10, it's awful. No, <laughs> Yeah. Bummer. And then, you know, it's like, I'm so hungry, because think about it. Think I about have that. not eaten since one o'clock. So one o'clock in the afternoon, I have not eaten. It's 11 o'clock at night. No wonder I'm so darn skinny. <laughs> it's true. I'm losing weight as we, sp- I'm losing weight right now.
0: I was going to say, every time you open your mouth and you're talking to me, you're just like calories, calories are just flying out of your
2: mouth. I know. I'm on, I'm on a quest right now actually to gain weight. I'm too skinny and I'm not, and I don't weigh enough and I'm, I don't want people to get mad at me like, oh, man, you know, you know, I'm too skinny, but but I am too skinny. So I'm sorry. I, I'm, I said it and I'm I, and I'm, I'm going to stand behind it. Well, may I recommend the Frappuccino? <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> you know, I could I could drink a hundred of those and not gain any weight. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, it's true. Kenny is kind of tiny. He's very lithe. And I saw a photo of him on his website doing shirtless push-ups, So I know. One thing that I was tickled by is the fact that you're so big in China that there's a song of yours that is played basically in every shop that closes for the night. So people have this association between your song and like, oh, the stores are closing.
2: Yeah, it's it's true. The, the song is called Going Home. A lot of time – now, by the way, I've been to China, gosh, 15-plus times. I've been to Asia almost 100 times in my career. But China, what happens there is they, they have a tendency to take – Literally, like, so the song's called Going Home. So they took the song, and to them, it must mean time to go home. And so, at the time when the uh, stores are closing, my song comes on. It's played throughout China, like, hundreds of millions of people hear it every single day. And when they hear it, it brings a feeling of. It's time to go home because that's what they've been taught about the song. So Very literal. It's super cool. I'm telling you, the, 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 the problem with that was the first time I went to China was that I knew that song was popular. So I thought, well, I don't want to wait till the end to play it because I think people will be restless. So I played it in the middle of the set. And when I looked up, everybody left. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, that's not true. Okay, That's it not like, true. But, it, like, but yeah, it was pretty funny. Been, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the
0: equivalent of that song they play in the U.S. at the end of the night at bars, that closing time song. You're that for China, yes. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And that was Kenny G's last meal. How perfect was that wrap up? It was called closing time and then we close the episode. I mean, wow, it's pretty good. Kenny G is touring all over the place with his saxophone. In the next few days, he will be performing a bunch in Napa. And then he is playing at wineries and jazz festivals all the way through September. You can get tickets at KennyG.com. Thanks to Elia Kassoff from Leaf Candy. You can check out all the candies that he's resurrected at leafbrands.com. Our theme music is by Prom Queen and this episode is produced by Aaron Mason and me. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Aaron Mason and I read all of them, yeah, all of them. And I try to figure out who wrote them. So I'm like, is that like someone I know writing another one or is that like someone I don't know? So that's pretty cool. Anyway, we read all of the reviews and we appreciate them so much. So thank you. and if you haven't written one yet, no, thank you. Please go and write a review. I have finally 2018ed it up and started an Instagram account. Ooh, exciting. Uh, So go to Your Last Meal Podcast on Instagram. This is where you can see a picture of me and my dad, Kenny G. Uh, This is also where you can see a picture of Aaron Mason and I in New York City at the James Beard Awards, all gussied up. You can see Dan Pashman of The Sporkful, who won... The category. Congratulations, Dan. Congratulations, Dan. Spoiler alert. We did not win a James Beard Award, but we had the best time ever. Uh, Padma Lakshmi introduced our category and introduced us, which was really exciting. Uh, We got to eat a three course meal, each course done by a different James Beard Award winning chef. There was a dessert bar afterwards, free cocktails.
1: Wine pairing with every course.
0: So much wine. So much wine. So much wine. Oh, and we got a like a gift basket at the end or a gift bag. Yeah,
1: swag, y'all.
0: Was so excited to see what was inside, and we everybody there received. It was like an Oprah moment because when they announced it, they're like, "We were gonna put these under the seat," and I was like, "Ah!" <gasps> But then it's going to be in the bag outside. I was like, oh, okay. But anyway, we each got these uh, smoking guns. It's like a little portable smoker so that you can, I mean, we're going to smoke everything. I'm smoking olives. I'm smoking cheese. I'm smoking mushrooms. What am I not smoking? Weed. (laughs) I don't smoke weed. So yeah, James Beard Awards, real fun.
1: Super fun. It was one of the most amazing nights I've ever had. And to be in a room with all these people who are super passionate about food and doing really good work and just seeing how different everybody was and, and yeah, all these really great perspectives that... That uh, it was just amazing to be there.
0: Yeah, it was amazing to be around all the passion and the creativity, and at least for me, it made me feel like I want to do a better job at what we do.
1: Yeah, and I absolutely didn't even feel bad about losing. No, like there was one second, like during the during the actual award, where all our names are up on the thing, and they're gonna open the envelope. That like my competitiveness kicked in, yeah, and I was like, "Oh, I want to win! Like the medal's so pretty, yeah." Uh, but but Dan won, and he's super deserving, and he's yeah. been nominated a bunch, and it yeah, it was just really as cheesy as it is, an absolute thrill to be nominated, an honor to be, and be to nominated. Even be there,
0: it's true. Yeah, I wasn't disappointed either. But hopefully, we will be back. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is your last meal.